Very welcome to the latest episode of the Attic Sessions. And today we thought we would look at the career cycle of, of the writer, if you like, in, in the company of two writers who are at different stages, I suppose, in, the, in their writing careers. Um, we've invited Kat Hogan, who published her first novel um, this summer, and also Catherine Dunn, who is now uh, just published novel number 10. So. Um, they have, you know, different perspectives on, on, on the writing career. So we're delighted to have you both. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks very much for coming along. Um, and if I turn to Kat first, j just to ask, your novel, um, They All Fall Down, uh, came out in July, isn't that right? That's right, yeah. The 1st of July was published. So what's it been like having your first book out? It's been certainly what I didn't expect I think in a lot of ways and I'm not sure as a total newbie to this industry what I really expected when when the book hit the shelves but it's been a whirlwind ever since really and so far so good it's going well mm -hmm. and the, you know the reviews are good and this and the other but I think I came into this quite quickly and quite green so I'm taking a little step back now trying to learn uh, on my feet as I go from the uh, the more seasoned veterans of the of the industry, I think so. So what what I suppose you know put yourself back into your head of, of you know maybe four or five years ago or or you know when when did the dream start to to write the novel? I think the dream was always there, really. I mean, but books for me came first. I mean, I always had a book in my hand to the point where I was described as an antisocial child because my nose was constantly in the book, Bookworm. you know, and my parents our bookworms, my brother. So, and it's just that feeling of when you find that book and you're sitting in your chair or on the couch or in bed and you're just lost in another world for a mm -hmm. couple of hours. I, I suddenly got this feeling, could I, could I make somebody else feel like that? You know, and then I, my background is hospitality and I did a business studies degree on the foot of that training and then I did a law degree. So my first delve into the writing world was from the other side of my brain where I was writing business plans oh, sure. and proposals, press releases, all that kind of thing. And But there was just that voice constantly mm -hmm. in the back of my head. And then I started thinking about a couple of characters. And, and then I did a creative writing course and I started the novel and I'm sort of, I'm on to something here. And then it wasn't by design that that book became quite dark, it just this character popped up and said hi Kat mm -hmm. and then it, it went down that route you mm -hmm. know. Well maybe it, you tell us a bit ab about the book what what what's the the premise of it? Well it's been marketed as a psychological thriller but I think it has uh, elements of a lot of different genres in it it's not pure psychological thriller it's not women's fiction it's not a crime novel but all those elements are in there and it's certainly a book of two halves where mm -hmm. the first half is you're developing these relationships between people and the effect that one particular person has on the dynamic of a group to their detriment ultimately mm -hmm. and then it all ramps up in the second half and you turn up the heat and it all goes pear-shaped then you know. <laughs> because the, char the character Scott that you, you, you're referring to there, the, the, the guy who causes trouble for everybody else essentially, like he really is quite a, quite a baddie. Was that fun? To write. Scott was the one that appeared out of the ether and said, yeah. no, this is not going to be women's fiction. I'm <laughs> going to come in here now and cause mayhem for you. So 
his character was brilliant to write and I think he became not only my favourite character but the best character in the book because it got to the point where I could smell his aftershave you know mm. I knew him yeah. so well mm. and mm -hmm. just his thought process and the way he looked at things it was like you really are twisted you yeah. know so but he was brilliant fun to write yeah I mean the, the energy I think in 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 fiction like the energy sometimes is with like yeah, they they say Paradise Lost that that the devil gets all the the, the best lines yeah, because that absolutely. that's where where the energy is. So so, I, you know, without going into any kind of psychological probing or whatever, do do you think that there was some kind of part of your own kind of id or something that you were putting into this? <laughs> or yeah, we are going into psychological probing. I think. <laughs> I I I'm, I don't know is probably the answer to that question. Yeah. I think we're all fascinated. I suppose creative brains are fascinated with people anyway, and we're fascinated about how people tick and how people interact with each other yeah. and what happens if you've got a really strong manipulative person within a group of people. Does he have the capacity mm -hmm. to manipulate and to fool people? And and I think a lot of the times the answer is yes. Mm. You know they mm -hmm. they do have that capacity to really play the puppeteer almost. Mm, mm -hmm. But one of the other really attractive things about your book is that it's it's also very rooted in a specific place. And, and, and you were talking before about uh, Wexford uh, a little earlier this morning. Um, and I was I was feeling I was in a small port town in in Wexford. Um, well, that's it. I mean, I grew up um, just up the road from the seaside village of Kilmore Quay, and as they say, write what you know. But really, for me, location came first for the simple reason that I all I wanted was, and I've told this story a hundred times at this stage, but all I wanted was a lighthouse on the cover of, of the book mm -hmm. as a nod to my late father, because he had worked for Irish Lights yeah. before after he worked in the Merchant Navy. So. I couldn't exactly fit in the middle, you know, mm. set in the Midlands if I wanted this mm, idea of the of the lighthouse. So location came first and I went actually went down, I say a fictional fishing village, but it was the beaches of Kilmore Key I walked, you know, imagining yeah. the characters and and it just it it all took off from there really. Mm -hmm. And then when I finished the book and sent it out, the first publishing house that came back to me was Poolbeck. Mm -hmm. So I had my With the lighthouse. lighthouse. After all, you Very know, good. so it's a little bit of synchronicity going yeah. on there as well, you know. But there's so also a trawler scene, which is very believable, oh, you know, right. and again, you think, gosh, this person knows her, her well, that's fishing. But I mean, I grew up down in Kilmarkey. I chased fishermen up and down the pier <laughs> in Kilmarkey. I got thrown off the end of the pier and went swimming down there. And, you know, we used to sit on the trawlers when they were in, sitting off, chatting to the lads, smoking yeah. fags and getting up to no good, you know. So yeah. I know that those people are my neighbours, you know. I know I know that life, I know those people. But again, I'd never been out working on a trawler, not mm. for the want to try and really, but I'd never, I'd never been allowed to go out. So I had to sit down with the lads and say, right, tell me about your day. Tell me about what it's like in your office mm -hmm. for the day, which they did, mm -hmm. you know, and quite happily sat there drinking tea with me and telling me their stories, you know, mm -hmm. so. So, yeah, I think I got none of the fishermen have come back and told me that I was completely wrong. So I think I got away with it, you know, just that little bit of research and then Weird. let your imagination fly. And and the other thing about Wexford in, in particular, and I've, I've heard um, Owen Colfer tell the story of how one of the things that started him 
off in the belief that he could write was seeing a manuscript by Billy Roach Billy that Roach, his father was, right. was, was reading. And so, you know, Owen was thinking, well, you know, real people in my own mm. locality can write, so, so maybe I can too. D did that sort of thing happen yeah, to you? I mean, the likes of Billy Cal or Billy Calfer, sorry, Owen, the likes of Owen Calfer and Billy Roach, they paved the way for yeah. us where you, you just, you just had that belief, well, if I want to do this, I can, because they've done it already, you mm -hmm. know, and it was funny, I was chatting with Owen one night, and we were sitting in our local pub, and I said to him, look, for fear of sounding like a cliche, you know, I think I might have a book in me, and he said, well, I'll tell you fairly quickly, if you can write or not, send me something, so I did, and he said, yeah, he said, get on it, just get it done, you know, mm -hmm. which eventually, yes, I did, and then, as I said earlier on, <coughs> the, the epiphany came for me, the writing epiphany, at the hands of Billy Roach when he spoke at Paul O'Brien's launch in Wexford and I just went right just get it done and I did you know so mm -hmm. like f to have the likes of Owen Colfer and Billy Roach that are so obliging with their time and their expertise and their advice you know I mean mm -hmm. where else would you get it only Wexford you know no. it's Absolutely. and they've been brilliant as well so that's the big boys club eh it's 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 to great great to have them in your corner I think you know um, so do you want to give us a, a bit of a taste of it would you like to read a little <coughs> I will I'll read a very short um, and you might want to just sort of set it in context in terms of of you know who the characters are and, and this bit that you're reading and well I think we'll have to introduce the lovely Scott won't we this is um, and this is the first introduction really you get to Scott and and just a little feel as to where where this story is going with him. So it's chapter two. He smelt the tobacco smoke before her, he saw her, followed by the sweet scent of her Chanel. She wore her evening gown of deep purple with amazing grace, the color enhancing her dark beauty. She was striking, her presence a force of nature, and she appeared far taller than she was. He knew she'd been there for some time, just watching, trying to understand him, but ultimately not caring. She leaned against the door frame as she held a cigarette in a gloved hand. Those familiar dark eyes bore into him and he made no attempt to hide his nakedness. He turned from the mirror and met her stare while the bile rose in his throat. Playing the game, he hid his emotions well and managed a smile that never reached his eyes. So many times he had tried to look at that face with love, but there was no love there. He wondered what it would feel like to punch her really hard and watch the blood flow from her perfect nose, down her chest and all over her designer dress. He imagined how her manicured nails and diamond rings would cope with the gush of blood. He wondered how quickly the thick carpet would soak up the blood and how swiftly a feather pillow over her face would stop her breathing and eventually stop her heart. But he knew it was just a fleeting thought. He wouldn't do any of those things. She was right, he was spineless. He could never harm her. He was a silly little boy. Scotty, darling, do hurry up. She exhaled the last of her smoke. The guests will be arriving shortly and I expect you downstairs beside me to greet them. Years of elocution had just about buried the Italian accent. Years of elocution at father's expense. Yes, mother, he said without emotion. So well done, nice very good. Who, who do you picture playing him if this was uh, <laughs> adapted for, for the screen? Aidan Gillen, 100%. Yeah, Aidan Gillen, because I was going to suggest Aidan Turner might be a... Um, no, Aidan Gillen's face comes to mind every time. So uh, I'm working on getting a book into his hands. Oh. So uh, 
we'll see. You well, know. somehow I don't doubt that that's not going to happen. I think that could it's very, very easily very happen. It's possible, isn't it? You know, nothing Absolutely. is impossible, as they say. So looking forward to that. So if we could maybe turn to Catherine mm -hmm. and, and, you know, maybe I'm, I'm playing up this sort of, you know, beginner and established uh, writer thing a bit just for the for the the heck of it. But listening to, to Kat there, how does that chime with your experience of the first one and how that happened? Well, I think Kat was an awful lot faster than I was. <laughs> I was just saying to her earlier, my first novel actually took me 12 years to write. Um, snatched minutes in between working and family and all the usual incursions into your time. Um, and also it was something that started off as a short story. I'd been writing short stories for a number of years and this one just seemed to get out of my control. It just seemed to start growing until eventually I realised at around 40,000 words that I had something which was no longer a short story, but I didn't quite know what it was. Mm -hmm. I had to kill off several characters along the way because it was getting too complicated. Um, and eventually, um, when, I, when I finished, um, there, was, there was that sense that definitely resonates with me, that throughout all of those years, the sense of the characters telling me where they were going never, never abated. It was always there. And I know for every writer this experience is different. Um, but certainly, I, I certainly agree with what Kat is saying about, you know, the, the character coming and saying, this is who I am, mm. this is what I'm going to do, mm. this is how you write me. Um, and at certain times, I remember feeling that, you know, I was just typing a little bit to kind of keep ahead of the voice that was in my head telling me what they were going to do. So that would certainly resonate with me that the characters would take over. Um, the, the thrill of publication, obviously, with the, with the first book, it's like the first of anything. It's very different from everything that follows. Mm. Um, but we were also talking earlier about whether it gets easier. And I don't think it does get mm. easier um, because I think what happens is with each book, you try and do something different. Um, I mean, you spoke earlier about how the book wasn't simply crime fiction or simply psychological thriller or simply women's fiction. And this is something that has been a bugbear of mine over the last mm. 20 years. Mm -hmm. You know, why do we have to shoehorn yeah. yeah. something, you know, into yeah. a particular genre? It's a novel. Yeah. Right? It's, it's a story. story. Yeah. So yeah. either read it for what it is, but stop trying to shoehorn it into being something else. But are the shoehorners <coughs> the people that are doing the marketing? Do, do they need to have these neat little... Well, so they say, but you would imagine if that was the case, well, then whatever genre they choose would actually would work and that's yeah. not necessarily the case. Yeah. Um, I think just, you know, I just think people need to have a broader, a broader view yeah. because certainly readers do yeah. and readers don't necessarily buy something only because it is so-called women's fiction, psychological sure. thriller, crime fiction, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they, they buy and often people buy word of mouth, you know, but that's putting it a stage further. I mean, when you're writing, you don't, I don't, and I think from what we discussed earlier, you don't have necessarily that kind of genre or that kind of shoehorn in mind. Mm. You have your story in yeah. mind and it grows because writing is organic. It yeah. grows as you write and you might start off with something um, two years previously and find two years later pretty that different. pretty much everything has changed, maybe apart from the central characters. Mm. Although mm -hmm. some of those can often be killed off along the way as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think to, to I, th I just think the genre thing can be very limiting. Yeah. And it can stop your creativity going down the, the sometime 
sometimes blind alleys where it needs to go because you can always reverse and come back again if mm. it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But I think not following a lead where your instinct brings you can be dangerous. I think you need to go there no matter how long it takes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, one of the things that I read about you is that, that you're really interested in issues as a writer. To what extent has that kind of influenced the choices you've made about the stories that you've told? Well, I would probably put it another way and say that the story actually comes to me as an idea already fully formed. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not interested in writing something that simply has a happy ending. I mean, I think happiness writes white, you know, I think we've all discovered that. So the stories that come to me are stories usually about the challenges that ordinary people face, to use that awful phrase, that we all face in our ordinary daily lives. And I suppose the, how I would phrase it is that I don't believe there's any such thing as an ordinary life. Mm. I believe that all lives are extraordinary. If you begin to you know, excavate below the kind of the public face or the surface that we all present to each mm. other, mm. all lives are extraordinary. And, and they are extraordinary in the issues or the things that we have to deal with. Um, I would hate to be seen as somebody who writes about an issue rather than the characters demonstrate what it mm. is to be enmeshed in some particularly difficult situation. Mm. Um, the, the last novel before this one was actually about cyberbullying and it was something that I had become very aware of, as, although something almost like in the ether. I'd stopped teaching at the time, stopped teaching secondary school anyway, but the stories I was hearing from younger people, it just struck me that this was something incredibly toxic, mm. which then meant that my last novel actually dealt with teenage suicide because there was a group that pushed this young teenager to that brink. But the point is that that story began for me by seeing a young boy pedaling somewhere furiously on his bicycle. I had no idea where he was going. I had no idea what happened to him. Yeah. So I had to write his story to find out. And if you like, the issue that emerged then yeah. from all of that was what I had been obsessed with over yeah. the previous number of years, which was this whole awful growth in cyberbullying, which is so pernicious because it's so anonymous. Mm, mm -hmm. um, so th the research around that was, was fascinating. But actually delving into the character's response was my business as a novelist, not necessarily the, the issue itself. Mm -hmm. So you're just you're you're looking at your world and, and things trigger responses, creative Absolutely. responses. Stories come. Yeah. yeah. Stories come. And and sort of again sort of shifting back a little to the, the more starting off part of mm -hmm. the of the career, were there other writers that were either influential or helpful or people that you wanted to be peers with or? Well, I remember a, a huge sense of isolation would be my memory of when I started to write because it would have been back in the mid 70s. Mm. Um, and, you know, when people asked me, when did I start writing? I actually didn't realise there was a difference between reading and writing until I left primary school. I used to believe, well, if everybody reads, I was a bookworm like yourself then of course you want to write your yeah. own stories. And I didn't actually realise that wasn't the case yeah. until I went to secondary school, by which stage I had learned to keep my mouth shut. And I did this very privately and it remained a very private exercise for a mm -hmm. very long time. Um, I think, you know, around the 70s, early 80s, women getting published was not really on the agenda. I mean, all of our canon, apart from Edna O'Brien and Jennifer Johnson, and we can name them because they were the yeah. only ones. Um, the rest of our literary experience, if you like, was both rural and male. Yeah. Uh, and I was a female and lived in a city, so none of this particularly resonated with what I wanted to write about mm -hmm. uh, as a young woman back in the 1970s. And I took some time out in Canada 
and I came across the absolutely amazing public library system in Toronto. And I discovered Margaret Atwood and Alice Munro at yeah. that point, yeah. and later Carol Shields. And I remember the joy of reading, it was Life Before Man by Margaret Atwood. I remember the joy of reading that and thinking, so it is possible. Mm. It is possible to write about the lives of women going about their ordinary, daily, domestic work, friendship, children, business, and make it into a novel that is as riveting and as captivating as mm -hmm. this one. So I, I suppose that rather than anybody local, that would have been my mm. influence, my inspiration, my 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 starting point, even though I had been writing a lot up to that point. Mm. At that stage, I think I began to take a slightly different turn mm -hmm. in direction. Um, so there are definitely parallels with the poetry world because, you know, Yvonne Boland talked about how, you know, she grew up in a period when the writers were male, maybe not rural, but 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 definitely that yes. there weren't sort of the sense of of immediate sort of female uh, predecessors mm -hmm. or a tradition that she could be part of. And so Absolutely. she, you know, looks to the States and people like Adrienne yeah. Rich and and, and uh, you know, the permission to write about her life as a woman yeah. in a suburb of Dundrum. Absolutely. Um, but I've, I don't know why it hadn't really occurred to me that fiction writers were having exactly the same kind of journey because there weren't the yeah. predecessors. Well, I certainly was. I mean, I yeah. obviously other people's journeys. Yeah. I mean, we touched off each other on many points and have discussed it over the years. Yeah. But certainly for me, that I, I felt just a huge isolation. Yeah. And I, I felt that if I came across anything to do with women's lives in fiction, we were an also ran, we were an appendage, we were part of mm. a family or part of a relationship, but always from the point of view of somebody else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I began to, over the last number of years, I suppose it's been a kind of a constant theme, I began looking at a lot of the, uh, the work of Mary Beard, um, who delves into classical civilization, and she's written such wonderful stuff about uh, how silence was the kind of the traditional role of women. Um, and and that, that struck me, you know, that that obviously has fed into our society, our modern society today. And just this whole notion of silence around what happens to women is, mm. I suppose, at the moment, one of the things that I'm, I'm finding my greatest source of inspiration mm. on how to address that silence. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But every say, say nothing, being the Irish yeah, yeah. Uh, response. Um, so how, how do you keep going? Is it just your interest in the world remains un, un sort of dimmed? Is, is well, I would hope that as I get older, my interest in the world increases, actually. <laughs> um, and, and, and passion is what keeps me going. Yeah. Um, it's, I, I can't think of anything else that I want to do as much as I want to write. And it's also, it's not even an act of will in that sense, in that when something happens, my immediate response is to frame it in my head in a paragraph or a sentence. I never claim to be sane, and I don't think writers are anyway. I think we have our own, our own measure of insanity where, you know, inhabiting a world with fictional characters is often a lot more stimulating than, you know, what one might have to do on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's certainly the passion for writing. Yeah. Um, and it's also, on a practical level, it's how I earn my living. Yeah. Um, so there's the, the um, financial imperative, if you like, which is always there that you have to keep going. Um, but I would keep going anyway, mm -hmm. I think, even if it wasn't the way that I earned my living, because that's just, that's my response to the world. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like Kat, when I was growing up, um, that notion of being transported 
somewhere else by a book somebody had written. That, that's the kind of thing which also, like you, I want to recreate. Yeah. I want to write a reader to open the covers of a novel and just be transported mm. to whatever location it is I happen to be writing about, to whatever character's life. I want the reader to feel, I can't put this down because if I put it down, I'm going to break what John Gardner calls the fictional dream and then I'm going to have to get back to reality again. So I'd much prefer to keep this fiction going. So tell us a little about the latest one, the years that followed, because <coughs> certainly, you know, reading it over the last while, I've felt immersed in this this sort of quite exotic world that, that you're creating. Tell, tell us how that came about. OK, well, this again was, um, it has become part of my fascination, which has been there ever since I was a child, with mythology. And the I remember being given a picture book when I was a kid of Greek and Roman myths. I don't know where it went because I think I have every other book I've ever got, but that one has somehow uh, managed to escape me. But always being fascinated by the tales of the Greeks. And then when I, went, when I started to reread them maybe five or ten years ago, I began to realise, you know, the, the, the depth of psychological insight that there is in all of these tales is just fascinating. And where a lot of the myths purport to be about territorial disputes or wars or power, they're all about what it is to be human, mm. what it is to feel lust, mm. anger, revenge, mm. rage, mm. love, whatever it happens to be. And I just thought I embarked on this really ambitious project. And this book is the first of a trilogy where I thought, wouldn't it be great to take one of those myths and take it from its mythological ancient Greek setting and bring it bang up to date? So that was the inspiration behind this one. And the story that drew me in was the story of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra, which again, like most of the myths, is a story of the abuse of power. Mm. And uh, Agamemnon sees this young woman, Clytemnestra, decides he wants her, takes her away from her father's house, abuses her horribly, kills one of her children, and then uh, fools her into thinking that he has found Achilles as a suitor for their daughter, Iphigenia and sacrifices Iphigenia on the altar at Aulis mm -hmm. because he wants fair winds for the Battle of Troy. Mm. Now, obviously, there's lots of things a modern writer has to transform sure. in that because I don't think we're going to believe in child sacrifice uh, to that extent. However, yeah. there are many ways yeah. of, of abusing yeah. uh, or damaging a child. And it also fed into my other deep concern around the issue of silence around the lives of women. And this particular silence was in the case of domestic abuse because instead of making Agamemnon the kind of all-powerful, rapacious king that he was, I make him a serial domestic abuser. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if you like, I found it scarily easy to imagine that kind of abuse of power from ancient times into, into now, into a domestic setting. It just became very clear to me that it was it was all part of the same continuum. Mm -hmm. Now that, if you like, is the is the issue that emerged. So we leave that aside yeah. for the moment. But what happened was um, I have a young woman, Callista, who's born in Dublin in the 1960s and she's Clytemnestra. I didn't want emails, mobile phones, ease of communication, financial independence, nothing. I wanted none of those things. And I began to write the story from her point of view, breaking the silence about when she meets Agamemnon was called Alexandros in the novel. And then just as Kat was describing, another character popped up and became, without my uh, imagining it or devising, it became the kind of Greek chorus. Right. And yeah. her life then reflected on the life of Callista. So, so it ended up Pilar. being Pilar, yeah. the Spanish woman. Yeah. So it ended up being um, the story of two parallel lives 
where really their fate emerges from both the abuse of power of others, but also bad decisions. That whole concept of you make an impulsive decision in just one moment and, and it, it has can a actually impact effect. the rest yeah. of your life. And yeah. that's a really, that's another really interesting one for a writer that what if, yeah. you know, what do you follow? What if yeah. this happens? Yeah. Um, so then the, the location also became very important because I had to get Callista out of Dublin. I wanted her to be in a completely alien environment, just as Agamemnon took Clytemnestra from her father's house. So Alexandros takes her to Cyprus. So we have Cyprus, Ireland, London and Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, and of course, it was very difficult to go and research locations like Cyprus and Spain. What My heart is bleeding for you, Catherine. But somebody had to do it. Absolutely. So that's the background. And you were telling me that this is the first book that is now going to be published in the in the US. It is. Yes. Yeah. So how exciting is that? That's fantastic. Yes, it was uh, bought by Touchstone Books, which is a division of Simon and Schuster mm -hmm. and will be published in New York. But did Early it require a certain amount of re-editing, even oh, with yes, the spelling and all that kind of yes, stuff? Yes, I mean, I found that interesting because when we import American writers' work here, if you like, we, we take it as it is. And I'm always fascinated by when you open a book by an American writer, never mind the spelling, you always know this is a work by an American writer. There's a particular atmosphere mm. to it. And I love that difference in spelling and atmosphere and sense. But they're... Um, modus operandi, I suppose, is that they want to change European style spelling into mm -hmm. American. And so we did. And mm. uh, it was, you know, it's one of those times when, you know, when you get to the stage where if I have to read a draft of this book once more, I'm burn going, it. yeah, I'll burn it or myself, one <laughs> or the other. So it came at that point where you know, I thought I was finished, mm -hmm. but we had to go back over the whole thing again. But it was an interesting process as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, it's always good to find out how how other publishers work and what other markets demand. So it's a learning curve. And so you're it's happening in October, in the middle of October, middle isn't of it? Middle of October. Yeah, Great. that's right. And then we launch in Canada after that as well. Great. So it'll be a busy month. So would you maybe give us a, a taste of? <coughs> and this is uh, Callista as an older woman. And she has a plan in place because the tagline on the book is that revenge is sweeter than regret. And this whole notion of a of a woman who was part villain, part avenger and part victim was part of the motivation for her character, too. So she's in Estremadura in Spain in 1989 and she's beginning to look back on her life and on the plan that she has put in motion. It is now late evening and the air is glowing. Callista doesn't know how long she's been sitting here gazing out of the large circular window that captures the landscape below. This is her favourite time of day. She's always loved the way there is no dusk here, the way the day plunges bravely into night with no wishy-washy hour of grainy light in between. The crickets continue their nightly racket. The smell of jasmine intensifies and the great red ball of the sun disappears with predictable efficiency behind the horizon. Callista knows that if she keeps on looking, she can postpone the moment that awaits her in the room at the top of the stairs, a room now shaded by the dying embers of evening. From here, Callista can see the lights of the nearby villages, the silvery gleam of painted houses, the serried groves of olive trees. Occasionally, a motorbike stammers along the road below her, punctuating the quiet air. She watches the way night settles across the countryside, 
the way shapes shift and alter in the rapid darkness. Hills become folded predators, farmers' shacks menace the crouching fields. It is possible to see for miles. In the distance, a butter-coloured moon spills stillness onto the darkness below. Here at this vantage point, right at the top of the hill, no approach, no retreat goes unnoticed. Callista had chosen this site so that nothing could ever again take her by surprise. She leaves the landing now and makes her way up the final steps of the stairs. These days, once night falls, one of Callista's more constant routines is to watch with the darkness and to remember. Once, Rosa asked her if being so visible made her feel vulnerable. Don't you mind, she'd said, the way that people can see when you're alone? The question had surprised Callista. She'd never thought about that, not here. Here, her house was her sanctuary. Within it, life was safe, orderly, contained. That was why she had chosen the location in the first place. She reaches into the cupboard now and takes out a bottle of whiskey. She pours herself a generous measure and sits facing the fireplace. No water, no ice in the whiskey. Her father had taught her that a long time ago. He disdained such frivolous fashions and Callista has followed his example. She allows herself to smoke only in the evenings and she lights a cigarette now, drawing the smoke deeply, pleasurably into her lungs. Her head feels instantly light. As she smokes, she lets her eyes drift towards the gallery of black and white portraits that make up the one startling wall of the chimney breast. They are as familiar to her as her own face. In a way, they are her own face. Her gaze alights on the central photograph, a man, young, dark-haired, handsome, but not in any conventional way. He has a strong, commanding face, clear, brilliant eyes. Callista has kept this portrait of Alexandros no longer out of love, but out of the desire never to forget. On either side of this man, satellites orbiting the moon, are the bright faces of two young children, smiling faces, unknowing faces, gazing off into the future. Tonight, Callista welcomes the unravelling of emotion that comes as she looks at him, at all of them. All that I've loved, she thinks all that I have ever loved. She cannot put it off any longer. Callista sits back, nurses her glass and allows herself finally to remember. Well done, well done. And again, you know, that, that switching of, of uh, point of views between Callista and, and Pilar is a really good way of, of developing the suspense and, and intriguing the reader because we, we, we want to you know, want to know yeah. how these are going to dovetail. And I think one of the one of the decisions that I took initially the when you were talking about building the suspense in the first part of the novel, um, initially those sections might have been longer, mm. but in sometime around maybe the seventh or the eighth draft, I deliberately chopped them mm. and made them shorter so that the the point of view shifts quickly, mm. which at least gives the also gives the momentum and the illusion that things are happening mm -hmm. maybe faster than they are. So here's a quick little technical question for both of you, actually, because you know you just mentioned drafts, and mm. I'm conscious of the first draft of my novel that I'm going to attempt to turn into a second draft shortly. Mm -hmm. How many drafts does it take? Um, that's how long is a piece of string? <laughs> yeah, I was just about to say the same um, thing. I but think. certainly with this, I reached eleven. Wow. Now, not 
huge significant amounts might change maybe from 8 to 11 yeah. but they certainly change hugely from 1 to 8. What mm -hmm. about your experience? I think I was lucky first time around maybe sometimes ignorance is bliss in a way really when you're approaching that first time of that first draft and you know I was conscious I suppose from being a reader I was conscious of how to keep a story flowing mm -hmm. and characters and plot holes and this and the other but the bane of my life was commas the more technical <laughs> things you know and comma splices and so the story overall it didn't require a huge mm. amount of work it was mm. just everything else needed mm. to be polished mm. up and this that, and the other you know but mm. I think and I had this conversation with someone yesterday it's it's kind of like kneading dough when you're making bread isn't mm. it you can keep going back at it and going back at it yeah. and going back at it and then there comes a point where you've killed it yeah, completely. yeah, you, know, yeah you have to let it go it's that point and I think that's the hardest point mm. to reach where you go where I need to let I just yeah. it's done now you know yeah. and and then of course you doubt yourself I even reading that back now I'm looking at little things going oh if only I'd done it you know well the next I one I suppose that's where yeah, the next well, one. and I've learned so many from the first one I've learned so many little things mm -hmm. now that I've already started to apply the second sure. one and I think Jesus, this is great but you, you know, know I think one of the really interesting for me one of the really interesting things that a later draft does is um, I often find if you feel that something you're not quite getting where you want to be with something save the draft and rewrite it from another point of view yeah and <clears throat> i think that's hugely uh, helpful particularly if you're in that kind of st that stuck middle period mm. which most of us go through mm. at some stage mm. it could be at the beginning mm. could be at the end but mm. more than likely it's going to be somewhere in the middle mm -hmm. and to go back to that point where you started to have difficulty create a whole new draft from the eyes of another character it can be a revelation and mm. the first eight drafts then really end up as being one and then you start from there mm -hmm. and do do what you need then to finish the novel so I, I don't get scared by the number of drafts that it takes at all because all you're doing is hopefully making it better yeah. Yeah. refining and refining mm -hmm. So just just to sort of come towards the, 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 the end here, I'm, and again, this may be an impossible question for Catherine, but I'm going to put it anyway. What advice would you offer Kat in terms of, of what you know now, uh, what you would have liked to have known then, or you know, what, what are the sort of pointers that you'd maybe offer the okay. first time? I, I think the first one, I think the most important one is resilience, that you just keep going, you just keep writing. Um, there are things which will happen over which you have no control and um, there is no doubt that at some stage along one's career bad reviews are going to happen, uh, begrudgery is going to happen, um, something that you really want to happen with a, with a publisher doesn't work out, uh, your hopes and dreams for your book are shattered for one reason or another, all of this happens and it happens all the time. And I think, you know, if the passion and the persistence and persistence, I think, is, is, is just as important as passion. Mm -hmm. You actually have to try to develop a thick skin and just keep going mm. through it all, no matter what, because to lose sight of the passion that brings us into this. And I won't call it a business, mm. but this way of life mm. Mm. to lose sight of the passion that brings us into this business in the first place is the saddest thing of all. And I think that kind of screen around ourselves of I'm going to be resilient. I'm going that's to keep right. going no matter yeah. what. I mm. think that's the most important thing. Mm. And being professional is another. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if I and I, you know, I've seen directors of festivals who get very cross where somebody has been asked to read maybe for 
five minutes and they hog the stage for 15 or 20, you know, things like that all help. Um, well, all hinder if you do yeah. them that mm. way, but they mm. help to build a reputation where you're asked back again, mm. you know, and, and being visible is important. And I know that now I think the social media uh, end of things, which wasn't there at all when I started writing, I've come to that very late. And that for me is it has been a huge learning curve, but it's also something which sometimes I resent mm -hmm. because in my day, all time is writing time apart from all of the practical things I have mm. to do and to feel, con you know, to feel pushed into having to spend a certain amount of time on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it it's happens to be. Though, it can it? be, is it? Yes. Mm. Uh, so, but I mean, again, it's trying to, to balance those things I would say are important, which mm. wasn't the case when I started out, there was no such thing as social media, mm. Mm -hmm. um, but it has become an issue now. And I think trying to balance those things is really act, important. Yeah, mm. because mm -hmm. sometimes self promotion can, take up more time than you're writing and I think that's a danger zone. Yeah. So certainly resilience, keep the passion, the persistence and I suppose balance your writing time with promotion time. Yeah. So now Kat, are you sorted? Oh, <laughs> sorted. I'm going to go now and write the, the next bestseller, you know. Are so. you as excited? But no, I think next you're right, Catherine, and it's sort of, you know, as I said, when I've come into this industry quite quickly really mm -hmm. in a way you know and maybe look an element to look for for a hidden trend if you want to put it that way but i i'm learning fast you know and i'm i'm getting to that point now where it's look put that little screen around mm -hmm. yourself and hold on to that that passion you have for storytelling mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. a dying man holding a raft you know because you can't get caught up in the hype of it and yeah. this constant promotion and constant checking on amazon to see mm -hmm. how your book is mm -hmm. doing mm -hmm. and checking for reviews and you'd end up going do lally from the yeah, whole thing sure. so you just yeah. so i think i had a bit of a watershed moment last week when i went no it's out there now my baby has gone out yeah. to the world let, let her off, off. Yeah. Yeah. and just concentrate now on balancing kids and home and family and getting back to work and i'm mm -hmm. itching to get back to this story anyway so great you know okay. Well, listen, may I wish both of you huge luck and success and great reviews and ongoing enjoyment in your craft, because uh, that's what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And thank you very much for coming you. and sharing thank your work in the attic. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, both of you. So thank you very much for joining us too, you, you um, one or two people out there in the <laughs> internet world. Um, we'll come back to you again next uh, month. No idea what we're going to be talking about yet, but hopefully it'll be as interesting as this has just been. So thank you very much. Thanks to Peter Salisbury, who is always at our side behind the camera and he'll probably edit that out. And Baxter. And Baxter. Yes, I know that I'm just a dreamer. I dream because it's the closest I'll ever get to you.